0: It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour.
1: Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long.
0: Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co host, David Feldman. Hello, David. Hello, Steve. And the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello,
2: everybody. We're talking about citizen victories today.
0: For more than four years,
2: the Sierra Club in
0: Maryland has been fighting Governor Larry Hogan over an $11 billion highway expansion bill. The proposed expansion would have widened the Capitol Beltway, built new toll lanes, and ultimately added hundreds of miles of highway to an already congested and polluted region. The politicians backing these plans argued that expansion is necessary for progress and that it will decrease traffic for millions of DC area commuters. The Sierra Club and their allies insisted that increasing air and water pollution and disrupting surrounding communities was an unacceptable cost. Our first guest today is auto safety expert, Byron Block. He'll join us to discuss the Sierra Club's successful campaign to stop Governor Hogan from approving the expansion bill and what Maryland's election of their new governor, Wes Moore, means for their ongoing work. The second part of our show will be joined by Sari Kayali, Microgrid manager for Green Roots Chelsea and Chinatown Power. Microgrids are self sufficient energy systems that serve a discrete geographical area, like a neighborhood or college campus. As global warming and decaying infrastructure threaten our power systems, microgrids are one option for building more resilient sources of energy. We'll speak to Mr. Kayali about the possibilities for microgrids to make essential utilities more accessible to vulnerable communities, promote sustainable local development and give constituents a voice in how they receive their energy. Finally, as a bonus, we're going to speak to our executive producer and the executive director of Progressive Democrats of America, Alan Minsky, about the work PDA is doing to bolster the progressive movement. He's in Washington, D.C., attending some conferences, and we'll have the latest from him. As always, somewhere in there, we're going to check with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, it's always good to hear about activism that succeeds. David? Byron Block
3: is an independent consultant and court-qualified expert in auto safety design and vehicle crash worthiness. Over the years, he has fought for safer fuel tanks, stronger seats, the need for airbags, better truck underride guards, and has testified on these safety issues at congressional hearings and to NHTSA. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Byron
4: Block. Thank you, and it's quite a pleasure to join with Ralph.
2: Welcome, Byron. People should know that Byron was an auto safety reporter on ABC television in Los Angeles for seven years, so he knows how to talk concisely and factually. I want to start with telling the audience that this situation that Byron's going to describe in terms of highway expansion in Maryland has similar patterns with these public private partnerships around the country. Different actors, similar problems. And Byron lives in Potomac, Maryland, and so he caught wind of this Australian corporation connecting with the Maryland state government and proposing what's called a public-private partnership to widen the major I-270 and I-495 highways in the greater D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. And in a detailed description submitted to the authorities, Byron Bach says, Quote, the scheme is fraught with critical public health and safety hazards that will adversely affect adjacent communities and counties for decades to come. Many thousands of our citizens will be sickened with asthma, silicosis, lung cancer, and the hogan Transurban scheme is unwarranted, irrational, must be stopped from proceeding any further. Indeed, it even increases traffic congestion. Now, I'm going to give away the result, but... Byron and others he's going to describe stopped this project cold. So, Byron, why don't you describe how the civic community, including the Sierra Club and you, rose up to block what was going to be a huge boondoggle and a hazard for hundreds of thousands of people?
4: Okay, this was a concerted effort by many citizens and organizations such as the Maryland chapter of the Sierra Club, and the Natural Resources Defense Council and others, including citizens groups that were named don'twiden270.org is one. And another one was C-A-B-E, Citizens Against Beltway Expansion, uh, 495.org. So these various organizations that were environmentally focused got together, and we had a series of in-person meetings And of course, over the pandemic years, we had Zoom meetings as well, and we coordinated our efforts to show that this was a scheme that would be injurious to public health and traffic safety, would not reduce congestion, as that was the ploy to do this project, to widen the I-270 and the 495 Beltway, and add two toll lanes in each direction, high-priced toll lanes. So this was recently stopped when Transurban, the lead company in this consortium of the public-private partnership scheme, when they withdrew. And that was just recently, a couple months ago, Transurban withdrew for a variety of reasons because of public pressure from citizen organizations and individual citizens. And I was proud to be one of the many people that contributed to that effort.
2: Well, you know, in your description, which is very detailed and informed hundreds of citizens and citizen groups, you said that all these concerns, all these health concerns, toxic pollution, risks of respiratory diseases were not even addressed in the environmental impact study. How does a giant Australian corporation, Transurban, get its hooks into the Maryland state government?
4: Well, I should point out Transurban doesn't actually do the work. They don't make the highways wider or do that kind of work. They subcontract out to other companies to do the real work. What they do is they push the scheme at the state level to try to get cooperative, let's call it, partnerships with the public government. In this case, it was with Governor Larry Hogan, who was the Republican governor in Maryland, He's no longer the governor. He's been replaced with a Democratic governor. So what they do is they try to, under the guise of it being a public-private partnership, saying, oh, it won't cost the state money because it'll be done with private funding. And all we want is for 50 years, we want the toll revenue, the predominant toll revenue from these high-priced toll lanes to go to us to help repay the money that we fronted to get this thing built. So basically, they're like the agents that kind of orchestrate putting the scheme together.
2: What kind of massive amounts of silica would have been polluting the air over large numbers of square miles here? Okay, so
4: what I did was I was one of many people who examined portions of the environmental impact study which they were required to produce, an environmental impact study. And I tried to see what they were ignoring, what they did not include. And one of the things that jumped out to me was that they were not at all addressing the issue of what is called crystalline silica construction dust, which the National Cancer Institute has identified as toxic and carcinogenic, and that you should not be breathing in the silica construction dust during the length of this project, which could go from three to five years of literally cutting apart, destroying the existing road, which is mostly concrete construction, and the bridges that go across the road. There are many bridges and the sound walls. And that would daily, imagine this, Ralph, for three to five years, wherever you lived along the way, you would be breathing in toxic carcinogenic silica construction dust, Every day that they were using the saws to cut through the concrete and then, you know, carted away and God knows where they would take it to. And in the meantime, these tiny particles of silica construction dust would be breathed in by, you know, children playing outside, people taking walks with their dogs or for exercise or bicyclists. We'd all be breathing this in. We'd have to keep the windows closed in our residences and in our schools. And the kids couldn't go out and play at recess.
2: The state and the Australian company's argument is that they had to widen and rebuild the road and the bridges on I-270 and 495. What's going to happen now?
4: Well, what's going to happen now is, and they ignored this, by the way, was that the so-called traffic congestion had been significantly alleviated because of the workarounds that many people you know, have done in the pandemic era, the three years we've just been going through, And the so-called congestion on the road would have been exacerbated, increased by going. Now it's five lanes that funnel down to two going north toward Frederick, Maryland. And can you imagine if they're saying it's a congested road now where you have five lanes funneling down to two, but we want to make it seven or eight lanes funneling down to two, you're going to increase The bottleneck problem of funneling even more lanes of traffic down to those same two lanes as you go north of Gaithersburg to Frederick, Maryland.
2: How do they draw it down from five to two? That seems to be contradictory what they're trying to do. Is it because of the construction period that they have to do that?
4: No, no, no. Right now, from Gaithersburg north to Frederick, that stretch of road is only two lanes in each direction. So what they should have focused on but didn't was widening the two lanes that go north from Gaithersburg, Maryland, north to Frederick, Maryland, make those lanes instead of two, make those four lanes or possibly five. They should have been widened previously, but that would alleviate the bottleneck situation of the traffic, certainly the northbound traffic, which is what one of the major things they're saying that this transurban scheme was going to alleviate.
2: After the victory, you think they're coming back, that the Australian company and their allies are going to come back with another scheme?
4: Yes. Yeah. My colleagues and I, we've discussed this. And Transurban, you know, this is their modus operandi. And there are other companies as well that try to entice the states and the counties to these public-private partnerships, where they then take over the publicly funded roads and make some of those lanes that were built and paid for with public funding. They wanna take over, capture one or more of those lanes in each direction and then privatize it as a toll lane. So they're very creative in promoting under the guise of it'll alleviate traffic congestion, but they ignore the environmental impact. They ignore the silica construction dust that will give children and adults respiratory diseases. And by the way, when they were challenged on that, they said, well, we may. They came back with a modification in the environmental impact study and they had not addressed this initially, Ralph, disgracefully so, they had totally ignored it. And the response was, oh, we're we're gonna consider using the tanker trucks with water to water down the work areas where we're gonna be cutting the concrete. So then we can sort of suck up the silica construction dust which will be in the water. Now, that process is a very marginal process at best. And it's even been criticized within the road building industry as being a marginal, basically, you know, minimally effective way to capture the silica dust.
2: Before we get to the overall goal that affects all public highways in the U.S., which is corporations are basically going to the states and saying, look, we can relieve you of running these highways. We just take them over on 50-year leases. We collect the tolls, and the politicians seem to get relieved short term. Before we get to that, did the civic opposition and the environmental group opposition involve something other than just public information? Were there lawsuits involved?
4: Yes, there were lawsuits filed by a collection of some of the organizations I mentioned, for example, the Maryland chapter of the Sierra Club, working with the NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council, NRDC, and other organizations. They got together and have filed litigation, which is another area that citizen groups that are listening to you know, your program should consider because the environmental impact studies that have to be done are typically done in such a minimal evasive fashion that there is opportunity for the citizen groups to protest and then to file litigation that the environmental impact studies are totally inadequate in many ways, including public health and traffic safety issues.
2: This drive to corporatize public highways is a huge pot of gold that is seen by these corporations. Some of them are U.S., some of them are out of Spain, Australia, as we mentioned. They've got a whole plan, a whole lesson plan on how to do it. Like they went into Indiana and they basically say, look, you know, you don't have to worry about these highways, we'll maintain them. You don't have to use public funds, just give us a 50-year lease. And before they know it, the tolls start going up and people can't do anything about it. They took over the public parking garages in Chicago, promising all kinds of relief for the taxpayers. And then suddenly, the parking rates went up, and they couldn't do anything about it. So it's part of the corporatization of public infrastructure. They are going after, in Connecticut, for example, the private electric utility monopoly Eversource is buying up drinking water systems in small towns saying the same thing. Your budget's a strapped small towns. We'll take the burden. Just let us buy these drinking water systems out. So they either want to buy them out when it comes to drinking water systems, or they want these 50-year guarantees, which are all fine print. They're negotiated secretly between state officials and these corporate lawyers. And here we go again. So what is your take, Byron Block? on how you can keep these corporations at bay and so they don't come back again and again. How are you getting ready to block them from coming back with a new scheme? Well, for one thing, Ralph, as you
4: have pointed out many years ago, even involving with the auto industry, the revolving door game keeps going on. And that's where people of the state government and county government end up becoming consultants and then employees of the companies that are trying to push this. That's one thing that happened in the Hogan administration. A top employee left to go to work for Transurban. And of course, you know, the connections are, are there and the political contributions are there. So the politicians feel, OK, thank you for this contribution. Do you have any you know, ways we can help you? So you have to be very mindful and try to hopefully regulate and make public The contributions from these companies.
2: When you documented the corporate cash going into the pockets of these campaigning state legislatures, so did the cash register work? No hearings in Annapolis by state legislative committees on this?
4: Correct. Yes. It was pushed through as a godsend, pushed by Governor Hogan that this is a way that we can alleviate traffic congestion and not have to spend our money because this nice company from Australia is going to fund everything and alleviate the financial burden on the citizens of the state of
2: Maryland. And was the 50-year contract released publicly for review before it was signed off by state officials?
4: No, not yet. (laughs) So, Is it public now? No. Well, this is being requested in the litigation process that the contractual obligations of the state to pay a Transurban or whoever would be the privatized party for the payback on the toll scheme.
2: Listen, this is what we've been talking about week after week. The corporate state arrives in different manifestations, the military-industrial complex and the Pentagon. This is what's going on at the state level. doesn't get many national headlines, but it's the merger of corporations with state government and a lot of secrecy involved, a lot of phony promises, a lot of misleading rhetoric. And the legislators are compromised by the campaign contributions and the pressure from the governor's office. And before you know it, 50 years handcuffs and higher and higher tolls. So tell our listeners, Byron Block, how much time, how much effort did it really take? I mean, You told me earlier when you talked to me about this months ago, you weren't getting great press. You weren't getting much press at all in the Washington Post and Baltimore Sun. How did you pull it off? Do you have a lot of meetings with the Sierra Club local, with the NRDC, with other citizen groups? Give us an idea how much it took in terms of time and effort. Okay. In
4: brief, this scheme started in 2017. Governor Hogan and Transurban basically announcing that this was their proposal to alleviate congestion on the the beltway around Washington, D.C., and this major road in the state of Maryland, the I-270. So that's how it started. Citizen groups became concerned as they were learning what was going to happen and how it would infringe on the parklands the forest areas here in Maryland, how it would take away residences and other public property adjacent to the widening of the road. Okay. And as citizen groups started to learn more of these proposals You know that uh, would alleviate congestion. That was the big banner that Governor Hogan and Transurban were waving. No one likes congestion. We're going to alleviate it with this wonderful plan. So I got involved and was educated a lot also by the Sierra Club people and others that there was an environmental impact study that was required by law, and could I help analyze certain portions of it with regard to vehicle safety and other issues, and I became very concerned that it was not the Hogan and Transurban Plan was not addressing public health issues.
2: And all of you didn't even think you could go to a state legislature or some sympathetic, say, Democratic state senators and representatives? Oh, we tried. Hogan just took the legislature off the map? Yeah, we tried.
4: Here in Montgomery County, Maryland, our Montgomery County Council basically was smooth-talked by Governor Hogan that if you don't vote to stop this project here in Montgomery County— then I'll consider, you know, the carrot was, I'll consider some state funding for public transit and other perks to help you as well. And so the county council here, the nine-member county council at the time, got bamboozled with these phony promises that if you vote to allow this public-private partnership with Transurban to go through and to privatize the toll lanes and widen the 270, that, G. I'm telling you verbally that I will help you with the other needs that you have in your county. And the county council members did not have the spine or the analytical ability and the courage to say, wait a second, there are many other adverse areas that you're overlooking with this widening and toll lane scheme. We're going to vote against it.
2: Okay. So thank goodness for judicial procedures. I think the giant Australian firm, Transurban said, oh, they've got a very credible case to defeat a motion to dismiss, and this is going to have to go through the courts for months, if not years. We're out of here. Byron Block, I want Steve and David to come in here because they have some questions or comments.
0: Yeah, Byron, glad to have you here. Aren't freeways, highways kind of like fish tanks that no matter how big you make the road, the traffic conforms to the size of the road. Does it really relieve congestion, all of these widening schemes? Because I live in Los Angeles, that never seems to happen.
4: No, 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 and I used to live in Los Angeles and one of the main reasons my family and I left was the insane, overly congested roads, you know, take you two hours to round trip it to something that an adjacent area that should be a 20 minute round trip became a two hour round trip. And Steve, you probably have seen what they've done with the uh, San Diego Freeway going over the Sepulveda Pass. It was more lanes and more lanes and more lanes, and that will alleviate traffic congestion. What it does, it invites more vehicles to use those wider roads on the pretext that it'll make your trip quicker and easier. And it is a pretext because the roads fill up very rapidly. What we have to do is refocus and say, we are a people-oriented nation, not a vehicle-oriented nation. And if you look at it in those terms, people-oriented nation, then you say, well, what are the economics? What are the health and safety issues that affect people? But instead, it becomes the almighty vehicleization of the nation. And that means more lanes, more traffic, more lanes, and then more traffic.
2: And, you know, I'll bet you some of our listeners are saying, talk about public transit, modern mass transit as the alternative. Well, months and months ago, we mentioned the GM oil company, tire company, criminal conspiracy in the late 1930s, and 1940s that, that bought up 29 urban trolley systems, which they thought was their competition, and scuttled them. And the biggest one was in the greater Los Angeles area. They bought up the biggest trolley system in North America and, in effect, disabled it. And they were caught by the Justice Department, criminal prosecution under the antitrust laws in Chicago, Federal District Court. And the Justice Department won. The fine on General Motors was $5,000. I mean, to this day, people are suffering in Southern California because of this criminal conspiracy. They're suffering from air pollution, from delays, irritation auto crashes, all of which could have been minimized by maintaining and modernizing this great trolley system.
4: When this Hogan and Transurban scheme was put forth, one of the things that jumped out to me was that this was not a multimodal transportation proposal. It was only widen the roads and add toll lanes. Where was any public transit or, you know, for bicyclists and pedestrians and other concerns? as well as rapid transit trains and electric buses and so on. And I said very succinctly, if this were proposed instead of here in Maryland, if it were proposed in Europe, it would have been laughed at, like it doesn't have anything multimodal, which the, to most of the European nations makes it a non-starter, unless you include multimodal transportation, meaning public transportation, as well as you know car centric. So that was a a sort of an alarm right from the beginning. Where's the multi? On that
2: that point, Byron, how can people get a hold of your very clear, documented case against this boondoggle that was defeated for the time being by civic action?
4: Yeah, actually, the Sierra Club used that same thing that I sent to you. They use that as part of their submission to the state in opposition. To the transurban scheme and the Sierra Club would be the resource to contact. So it would be the Sierra Club slash Maryland.org. And by contacting the Sierra Club of Maryland, that's where they have that information, you know, my, okay. my pages and, okay. and information as well.
3: David? What's the environmental impact on people who live alongside toll roads? Because many people who drive professionally know how to avoid tolls. So what do toll roads do to service roads
4: and city streets? Well, you mean increases the traffic going on and off the toll lanes. And sometimes they have to build the flyover ramps that go up in the air to get the centrally located toll lane entry and exit across the other public lanes as well. So it becomes like you see in Los Angeles, you know, the multi-level ramps that go in all kinds of directions you know, as you try to figure out where to connect to. So it's along those lines. But the health effects are horrific. Even the increase in the particulates from the tires and the brakes cause toxic materials to be ingested by citizens who live, you know, within a mile or two even of these increasingly congested roads. So it's a major health hazard that is not being addressed at all. The toxic silica construction dust during the phase of the demolishing the existing concrete structures and then rebuilding, that's not addressed, nor is the particulate inhalation from the tires and the brake linings and so on. That is not addressed at all. So we are literally breathing in the materials that will give all of us asthma, silicosis, COPD, and lung cancer. And it's not a maybe. It's well-documented by the American Public Health Association, by the National Cancer Institute, they've all documented these adverse health effects and they are not being responded to with remedial measures by the companies that want to build and widen all these roads.
2: Unfortunately, we're out of time. We've been talking with Byron Block, auto safety expert, advocate, expert witness in product liability cases, who joined this citizen movement with environmental groups using the courts to block this ill-considered boondoggle that was conceived in secrecy and perpetrated with corporate campaign cash spreading around. I was surprised, Byron, that the Washington Post didn't highlight this more because it has a number of reporters for their Maryland edition, but you prevailed anyway. And we'll keep up to date if the Australian company comes back for a second attempt to get this accomplished. Thank you very much, Byron. Thank you, Ralph, for bringing this subject to public attention.
0: We've been speaking with Byron Block. We will link to his work at ralphnaderadiohour.com. Up next, we welcome Sari Kayali to talk about microgrids. What are they? What can they do? But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber.
5: From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, May 19, 2023. I'm Russell Mokhyber. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration said last week that 67 million airbag inflators made by Knoxville, Tennessee-based ARC Automotive pose an unreasonable risk of death and injury to vehicle occupants and must be replaced Before more people die. In a statement eerily reminiscent of Takata Corporation's decade long resistance to recalls of its own airbag killers, ARC refused to comply. ARC appears to be following the Takata playbook, said Jerry Cox, who wrote a tell all about how Takata and its carmaker customers manipulated federal regulators and courts to minimize the cost of replacing inflators that have killed three dozen people and grievously injured several hundred others. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mulcahyder.
0: Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman, Ralph, and the rest of the crew. Let's find out about microgrids. David?
3: Suri Kiali is a mechanical engineer and the microgrids manager at Green Roots Chelsea, a community-based organization with a 20-plus year track record of achieving significant environmental justice accomplishments and public health victories. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Sari Kiali. Thanks for having
1: me.
2: Yeah, welcome indeed, Sari. You're working out of Chelsea in Boston, Massachusetts developing something known as a microgrid. So for all the listeners who are fed up with their electric monopoly company, the arrogance, the dominance, the unaccountability, the control over the regulators, this is the first foothold where local communities can set up their own microgrids for multiple purposes. Now, I know that very few people know what a microgrid is, and that's why we have Sari Kayali here to discuss it. Tell us what a microgrid is before you tell us what you're doing in Chelsea and part of Boston, Chinatown, right as we speak.
1: Yeah, so microgrids are essentially defined by local electric generation. Traditional electric grids, they'll generate power at a power plant pretty far away from the customers they're serving. They will transmit that electricity over those large transmission lines that you'll see along the highway and step down the voltage and distribute it on the electric lines that you'll see like from street poles and neighborhoods. So microgrids have their own advantages and that they, by having your electric generation on site, you have a more resilient form of electricity so that if that traditional grid loses power, you'll have backup power and it can be more efficient. The transmission process can cause like a 5% loss in the power that's being generated And it lets you switch back and forth between the electricity that you're generating and the electricity that the traditional grid is generating since the uh, cost of electricity varies based on how many people are using the grid at any one time.
2: So in other words, it can be a competitive tool by customers, residential and business customers, against the prevailing monopoly. You know, three years ago or so, Eversource confronted inadequately a storm and resulted in anywhere from four to eight days blackout in parts of Connecticut and Massachusetts. And they never really fully held accountable in order to reimburse fully the customers. They could have deal with the legislature here in Hartford to get out of it. They didn't have adequate technical people in the field. They had to import some from Canada at the time. How are you getting these microgrids authorized locally when Eversource is regulated at the state level? Where's the elbow room come from here? The local town government or what?
1: Yeah, so while we are working with the local municipal government in Chelsea, we are still stuck operating through Eversource, the local electric utility. So we're not disconnecting from Eversource, rather we're operating in parallel with them. That involves going through their interconnection application process, where we have to submit, you know, our design for our microgrid to Eversource, and they need to approve all of our designs before we can actually go ahead and purchase and install the equipment. And that's been a really tough roadblock to get past. The review process for our designs has taken over a year at this point. And we've recently had two of our three initial sites approved, but we're still waiting on approval for that last site.
2: Well, it seems like you're not going to get anywhere if it's just up to Eversource to decide whether they're going to let you in or not. What's the position of the state government here, the Attorney General, Governor Healy? Where are they positioned here? I mean, that's where it's going to end up.
1: Yeah. And while I'm not sure like how much I can comment on Where the governor is at with this, we have been advocating for, and it's not just us, it's many other, not just communities and community-based organizations, but solar developers, battery storage developers, everyone's advocating for reforming the interconnection process, streamlining it, making it more accessible, making it faster. But it is just a pretty significant barrier that we're all trying to work with and work around to reaching our goal of a decarbonized and cleaner electric grid.
2: I know one of the goals is to accelerate the move to renewable energy, as you just alluded to, but let's mm-hmm. take it from the viewpoint of a residential electric consumer, homeowners, apartment owners, and you're coming to them. Why should they join your effort? What are the benefits, apart from having an alternative source of electricity in case of a of a blackout by Eversource or a storm?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, we also offer electric savings. So we can essentially, Eversource will, between Eversource and the state, there are a host of tax incentives and programs that you can participate in that will allow your clean energy assets, specifically solar panels and battery storage, to bring you revenue. And so we we come in, we offer to install the batteries. And by owning and operating and coordinating all the batteries at these different sites together, we can control a larger load which allows us to tap into more lucrative revenue streams than any one of these sites would be able to tap into just on
2: their own. You're also working in Chinatown, in Boston, one of the worst polluted areas in Boston, if not in the state. Who are you working with there?
1: So we are working with Chinatown Power, Inc., which is a public benefit corporation. It was founded by members of the Chinese Progressive Association and the Chinatown Community Land Trust.
2: I know that you were once asked, what did you learn about these projects in your interviewing process that you found surprising? And you said, quote, I was pleasantly surprised to discover the level of excitement among community members and the efforts being made to empower them to make energy decisions for themselves. It's refreshing to see the community being treated as a partner rather than As an obstacle. Well, this is going to be a little difficult, listeners, to have Sari explain. But in the old days, you only paid for the electricity you used. Then came along a regulation that said, okay, you're going to have to pay a minimum amount regardless of how little you use. And now they have something called peak rating. Could you explain how these microgrids can relieve people of some of these? peak rating surcharges on their monthly bill.
1: Yeah. So basically when the grid is operating at peak consumption, that means it's the most electricity that's being used like for that year, for that day.
2: Like a hot summer day, a hot summer day.
1: You have a hot summer day. Everybody's running their ACs on high, trying to stay cool. We're using more electricity than the grid is typically designed to handle. So the utility needs to fire up what they call peaker plants. They're more expensive to operate than their typical power plants. They're less efficient, but they have the advantage that they can start up faster. And it's pretty expensive for them to operate. And they essentially just shift that cost onto the consumers. And so by reducing your consumption, whether that's through a battery or like a smart thermostat, which will just like reduce the level your AC is operating at for a little bit, you can reduce the utility's reliance on these peaker plants. And the utility will actually pay you not to use their electricity in that case, because then they don't need to buy this expensive electricity from these peaker plants.
2: Now, before we talk about what microgrid is doing around the country, there are a couple specific things. You said when someone asked you, what are the benefits of microgrid, you're very specific. You said, when the main grid goes down, your lights stay on and your internet stays connected. The rest of the time, we can monitor electricity demand to strategically alternate between the main grid, that's Eversource, and the microgrid to save you money on your electric bill by reducing the dependence on inefficient peaking plants that energy companies rely on when demand is high. With microgrids, we can reduce our dependence on fossil fuels, improve the resilience of our electric grid, and save people money all at the same time. I'm quoting you. Well, I don't think people understand quite what a huge task you have because you have to sign up building by building, don't you? Yeah. Explain that. So, it's
1: been tricky in both locations we're working in. But essentially, we need to go building by building, you know, perform like a full assessment of their current electric consumption, you know, their boilers, their water heaters, their heating systems. You know, the quality of their insulation, their windows, uh, their roof capacity to see whether or not the roof can support the added weight of solar panels. So it's a pretty involved process. We're trying to get buy-in not just from the building owners, but also from the building residents. We do a lot of education about the work we're doing and about its advantages. And all of that needs to be done before we can even submit our designs to Eversource, which then and then wait for approval and so on.
2: You must have a pretty remarkable city government in Chelsea, Massachusetts. How large is Chelsea? Chelsea
1: has a population of, I believe, roughly 45,000 people.
2: 45,000 people. And they have formally embraced the following goals and principles for microgrid one, community ownership and governance, two, ongoing project expansion, three, reduced emissions, four, improved public health and environmental justice five, minimal waste and toxins, six, creating local jobs with livable wages and job training opportunities, seven, socially responsible and diverse supply chain, finally, value-aligned financing. Well, that's an amazing position by a town government. Are they being besieged by Eversource lobbyists? They're well-known to throw their weight around. The CEO of Eversource makes over $11,000 an hour, by the way, on a 40-hour week out of Boston. Are they fighting it in Chelsea? Because if Chelsea breaks through, other cities and towns may wish to emulate them. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say they're being besieged. I'd say, you
1: know, this approach that we're taking is built around working through the existing system as inefficient as that is. So aside from, you know, the typical bureaucratic delays and whatnot, we haven't really seen a lot of pushback from Eversource at least in Chelsea.
2: Are you getting good press? Yeah, I I think there's been a lot of excitement around the project. Siri, some old timers may be reacting this way among our listeners. There are over 1,000 publicly owned electric companies in America, over 1,000. For example, Mm -hmm. Jacksonville, Florida is public. We all know about Tennessee Valley Authority as a generator, public. What do you say to someone who says, Why don't we just try to take over the utility and replace it with a municipal utility? Davis, California, I think, tried to do that years ago. What do you say about that? And then you see, you've got your entire show. You don't have to deal with Eversource and overlap and pushback, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So while I can't speak to the process in other states,
1: I know, at least in Massachusetts, Establishing a municipal light plant, it's not something that's been done. It's in, I want to say, a 100 years. And one of the main reasons for that is just the process by which you establish that involves getting approval from the utility to form your own municipal utility. You mean the
2: utility regulator, the state regulator?
1: I believe it's from the utility as well. I can double check that.
2: I think there are about four towns in Connecticut that have their own electric municipal electric company. So these go back a long ways, you know, mm-hmm. when there was more support for public facilities than there is today. Is the microgrid movement catching on around the country? Yeah, definitely,
1: especially since the technology around clean electric generation, solar panels and battery storage are kind of experiencing a revolution. Just in the past decade alone, solar panels have dropped to a third of what they used to cost to manufacture battery storage has improved dramatically in terms of energy density cost and reliability and so a lot of places around the country are, are, are looking to these as solutions microgrids have been around for a while they don't necessarily need to use clean technology you can have a microgrid that's powered by a diesel or natural gas generator but specifically clean microgrids are really you know catching on all around the country and around the world as a method of Bringing electricity to rural locations.
2: What if people want to get more information about microgrid and what you and others are doing? Can you give them a website slowly?
1: Yeah, microgridknowledge.com is a great website for information on microgrids and news about microgrid projects around the country and around the world.
2: Listeners should know that Siri Kayali is a mechanical engineer, so don't hesitate asking him technical questions about this. Can you give the website once more before we close, Sari?
1: Yeah, that's microgridknowledge.com. Also, if people are interested in learning more about Green Roots, they can go to greenrootschelsea.org.
2: And especially people in Massachusetts, because this could spread first in Massachusetts coming out of Chelsea. Thank you very much, Sari, and good luck to you.
0: Thanks for having me. We've been speaking with Sari Kayali. We will link to his work at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Finally, we're going to segue right into our next guest who happens to be in Washington, D.C., for an organization, Progressive Democrats of America. They're working to promote progressive issues. David.
3: Alan Minsky is a lifelong activist and executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. Alan has worked as a progressive journalist for the past two decades. He was program director at KPFK Los Angeles from 2009 till 2018, and he has coordinated Pacifica Radio's national coverage of elections. He is the creator and producer of the political podcast for The Nation and Jacobin Magazine, as well as a contributor to Common Dreams and Truth Dig. Welcome, Alan Minsky. Great to be with you guys.
0: Alan, so you're in Washington, D.C. with the PDA. What are you doing there? What's going on?
6: Well, I'm coming here now because one of the things I got involved with when I became a director of PDA was really looking out at American society, thinking about where the progressive movement is and what the movement needs to do to become a really mature movement that the public can have faith that we can have progressives lead the U.S. government. There's a whole bunch of elements that really the progressive movement hasn't been that attentive to, including things like industrial production and just the transformation, what it requires between the work between state business and government to transform American society so that it's operating on clean energy. So that it's industrial manufacturing, doesn't have breaks in supply chains. I mean, of course, this was five years ago before the pandemic, but I was even more confirmed by the necessity of this kind of transformation with the COVID pandemic and the breakdown in supply chains. So I got involved with a lot of projects that aren't that common for progressives to be involved in. And one of them is advocacy for high-speed rail. Another, by the way, is to develop a whole new manufacturing policy for the United States of America that's pro-labor, pro-green energy, et cetera but I am at the sort of highest profile high-speed rail conference that's been held probably ever in the history of the United States here in Washington, D.C., and it's absolutely fascinating. As you're, the Ralph Nader Radio Hour listeners probably know because they're very sophisticated, almost all of the rest of the industrialized world features high-speed rail as part of its national transportation system. Well, you go back a few decades, and it was unquestionable. The United States was the most technologically advanced country. And you hear in the press that, well, that's not really the case anymore. Other countries are passing us by. And there's no really way to make that clear to people other than to point out it. with high-speed rail, there's not a single mile of high-speed rail, true high-speed rail, in the domestic United States. And of course, China now has the largest, most elaborate high-speed rail system the world has ever seen. It's all throughout Western Europe. It's basically all throughout the rest of the world that's rich, except the United States. And so this really is an industrial social necessity. Of course, high-speed rail can have zero carbon emissions. And of course, it will be an incredible manufacturing boom for the United States. It'll be an employment boom. And uh, I'm very excited to be the sort of progressive voice in the room with a bunch of uh, capitalist industrialists. So it's great.
0: But what will it take, Alan, to get high-speed rail in the United States?
6: Well, that's the thing is it takes a lot. And one of the things it takes, of course, are federal incentives and we saw some of that come to fruition with the large bills that were passed finally in the last Congress, when the Democrats held both houses of Congress with a very thin majority, and then, of course, with Biden in the White House. So we've had some of that incentivization take place, and that is helping with, it looks like, a few projects are starting to approach completion.
3: I remember the Obama stimulus package of 2009 with shovel ready projects and he was Uh he and Biden were pushing high speed rail back then within three or four years it was dead in the water high speed rail between Los Angeles and San Francisco and Sacramento turned into a joke and they said this is never ever going to happen so are we looking at the same thing
6: well, you know, one of the things you, know, you go to a conference like this, and as much as I've thought about high-speed rail, you go to a conference like I'm at right now, and you learn so much that you sometimes forget about. But, you know, one of the things was, OK, it's going to be easy to build this line through the Central Valley in California, but it's going to be difficult to connect the Central Valley to Los Angeles because of the mountains that are referred to as the grapevine and the mountains that go between San Francisco and the Central Valley. But, you know, what country had the first high-speed rail? It's Japan which is basically a set of volcanic mountains sprouting out of the Pacific Ocean. They tackled that in the 1960s. So yeah, what's happened with American industrial production is, first of all, the hyper-reliance on private capital as opposed to having it funded, as it would have been, say, in the Roosevelt administration years by the federal government. I mean, the federal government back then just, okay, this is going to get done, and it gets done. We know in China, okay, we don't have a model like that. You know, 15 people sitting around the table in Beijing say this is going to get done. It gets done. And you know the motivation of labor and industry that takes place then in China is something on the order of what you would have maybe had in the ancient Egypt. I mean, they just snap your fingers and tens of thousands of people are jumping to it. Well, the United States doesn't operate that way. And of course, one of the things that you hear industry complain the most about, and this of course relates to the host of the great project, that we're on today, who's not with us on this interview, Ralph Nader, which is the regulatory hurdles that have to be overcome so that things can be pursued. And of course, this is the big thing around permitting reform. And a lot of industry and the fossil fuel industry wants to see permitting reform removed. And then many of the people, no doubt, at this conference, want to see permitting reform occur so that barriers to getting things done can go away. But I just think it's all very mismanaged. I, of course, disagree with those industrialists. I think in my environmental justice protections have to be in place, and they really are not the barriers. I think the primary barriers have been, I think that's largely a ruse. I would say the primary barriers are when you rely so much upon private capital to fund projects. Private capital is not going to invest in projects. They don't think they're going to get a return on. So you need federal government to take the initiative. And by the way, I do think that these could become profitable very quickly, especially, and then, you know, of course, I believe that those profits should flow back to the people of the United States if the money is put in by the federal government. But that hasn't been the way American government, especially since Ronald Reagan has been organized. Everything is structured so that all the losses are taken, are socialized, and all the gains are given to the investor class. So I think that's at the core of the problem.
0: Let's just wrap up this discussion with a final word, brief word here Mm -hmm. about kind of the post-Bernie progressive movement. I mean, Ralph spoke pretty sharply about Bernie endorsing Biden without any conditions a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What is the progressive Democrats of America take on that and the post-Bernie progressive movement?
6: Oh, that's, of course, I live and breathe that question every day. I wake up with that on my mind and I go to sleep with that on my mind. First of all, Progressive Democrats of America, we will work for the Democratic nominated candidates after the primary season. We never endorse candidates, officially endorse candidates who do not stand for the core public policy platform that we call for. So that's our position. We didn't so officially endorse Joe Biden for president at any point in 2020, and we probably won't in 2024. That doesn't mean that we won't be mobilizing our members to get him elected after the primary season. So yes, I I pretty much harmonized with exactly what Ralph said about this appointment in Bernie. As for the progressive movement, yeah, this is a very, very tricky moment for the progressive movement because we cannot be naive about what elevated us to the level where we are now, where we have a voice on the national political stage. And what achieved that were the 2016 and 2020 Sanders campaigns. You know, the presidential elections in the United States of America are followed hourly, by people across the world. The level of interest in the general population towards any election across America is minor compared to the presidential primaries, and then above that is the general presidential election. It is simply the largest spectacle in all of American society. Well, Bernie Sanders effectively took a close third place in two successive elections, and in doing so, brought into the national public discourse a set of public policies broadly embraced, by the way, more than the policies of moderate Democrats or the Republican Party into the national consciousness. So in 2024, in the absence of a strong progressive challenger inside the Democratic primaries, the fear that progressive policies will get, again, sort of re-marginalized is very real. And we as a progressive movement have to be conscious of that. And of course, all money, the entire establishment political apparatus wants nothing more than the marginalization of progressive politics. And we see that from the avalanche of money that pours into Democratic primaries against progressive candidates. So what I think we need to do as a movement is clearly elevate the progressive platform and then make sure it plays in front of the American people across this electoral cycle some way, somehow. My favorite method would be to have a set of clearly competitive congressional and senatorial candidates. But again, Senate candidates cost a lot of money. There's not the passion that exists for the presidential race. I mean, Bernie outraised anybody in the Democratic field last time. and In the last election cycle, it was $19, not $27. $19 was the average donation. You can't get that in a Senate race because the public passion isn't there. I mean, we'd like it to be so. But we'll we'll see what we can do on the Senate level. We'll certainly see a bunch of great people who are running for the U.S. House of Representatives, who are progressives, who are challenging more moderate candidates. I'm hopeful that those candidates can capture the public imagination. And whatever the case may be, we find a way through this election cycle to keep progressive policies front and center in the national political discourse. So that's what we're intent on doing. At PD Day.
0: Well, Alan Minsky, thank you for joining us from a a hotel lobby in Washington, D.C., and taking some time out from the events that you're attending there. Alan Minsky is the head of the Progressive Democrats of America. We will link to his work at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Thank you very much, Alan.
6: It's great to be with both of you, and I apologize for any
0: audio problems. (laughs) No problem. Take care. I want to thank our guests again, Byron Block, Sari Kayali, and Alan Miskey. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call the wrap-up, including the return of Francesco DeSantis. And in case you haven't heard, a transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted.
3: Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, it's free. Go to nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to corporatecrimereporter.com. We have a new issue of the Capitol Hill Citizens out now. To order your copy of the Capitol Hill Citizen, Democracy Dies in Broad Daylight, go to capitolhillcitizen.com.
0: And remember to continue the conversation after each show. Go to the comments section at ralphnaderradiohour.com and post a comment or question on this week's episode.
3: The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky.
0: Our theme music stand-up Rise Up was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager is Stephen Wendt.
3: Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph.
2: Thank you, everybody. It's good to have a victory or two.
4: Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Wirt, and welcome to the wrap up. First, we continue our conversation with Sari Kayali.
2: And what's your relations with Green Roots?
1: So, I am employed by Green Roots. However, I share my time between Green Roots and Chinatown Power our partner in Chinatown working on that
2: project. Are you getting support from the University of Massachusetts technology people? They've been known to be in support of renewable energy. I know one of the leading advocates many years ago for wind power was a professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst.
1: So we haven't received any direct support from them, but we have received financial support from the Massachusetts Clean Energy Center and the Municipal Vulnerability Preparedness Program, that's the state program. And we've been uh, receiving support from a coalition of organizations called Resilient Urban Neighborhoods. They have helped with a lot of the design and grant writing involved in this project.
2: Well, we're about running out of time. Any of my colleagues want to ask a question or make a comment?
0: Yeah, thanks, Ralph. Isn't there a national security piece to this too? With microgrids, because we, you know, we've done shows where I think Ted Koppel told us that the Chinese can hack our grid, we can hack their grid, and only mutually assured destruction keeps us from doing that. Talk about microgrids as a hedge against all of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, our microgrid still operates, you know, cybersecurity is, I think, a risk that still exists with microgrids. They are typically operated by a controller, a remote controller. And so they're still liable to those same types of attacks. So it's still a concern that, you know, we're very much keeping an eye on.
0: So it's, in other words, it's not necessarily decentralization, complete decentralization of the grid.
1: Yeah, it, it's decentralization of generation, but you still need to have coordinated operation of this distributed generation because we're not disconnecting from the main grid. We're operating in conjunction with them. And so, we still need that coordination, which still opens us up to those same types of attacks, unfortunately. Anyone
3: else want to ask a question quickly? Could you describe heat pumps and how they, not how they work, but how we can get them? They seem to be spreading throughout Europe, right?
1: Yeah. And there has been, I believe, there will be some incentives that will make their way through the IRA. The state of Massachusetts has pretty good incentives for upgrading to heat pumps. But yeah, they're essentially just an AC unit that operates in both directions, where an AC just takes hot air from inside your room and dumps it to the outside. A heat pump can take heat from your external area. Like, for example, an air source heat pump would take heat from the air
0: outside and bring it into your room.
4: Next up, Steve and David talked to Alan Miske about Medicare for All.
0: So now tell us about today the bills that are moving through the House and the Senate Paul and Sanders' Medicare for All bills. That's also happening, right?
6: Yeah, and I'm very excited to see they have 112 original co-sponsors for the House bill, which is, of course, a higher percentage. It's a few short of the total they had last time, but of course, the House caucus shrunk from the last Congress. And so getting that number of co-sponsors represents a higher percentage. And I think they'll probably lift it up further. In other words, most of the new members coming in are more progressive and are supporting bills like Medicare for All. In the Senate, this is the first time in a while that they've been introduced on the same day, the Sanders bill and the Jayapal bill. And right now, I think there are only about eight Senate co-sponsors. Last time, there were up to 14, much lower level. By the way, that speaks volumes about the Democratic Party and money in politics. Why is that? Well, in the House, where seats are not don't cost as much, so to speak, you have the majority of Democrats reflecting the position that the base of the Democratic Party overwhelmingly supports. <laughs> Medicare for All has popularity with the Democratic voting base of about 85 to 90%. It's overwhelming. In the Senate, you only have about 20% of the senators supporting Medicare for All. Those seats are astronomically expensive Senate seats. So you see the influence of money against what the people want and the influence of money inside the Democratic Party.
0: So what do you predict is going to happen when these bills are introduced? Is this just an exercise in symbolism? Tragically,
6: largely, yes, as long as you have a Democratic president who doesn't support it. And I'm not saying that because I believe we're at a point where we have to vehemently oppose apparent nomination of Joe Biden for president. That's a whole other subject. But I think it's very tragic that we're in a situation where the Democratic Party, I mean, is so, all the critique that has been made on this radio show since its inception of the Democratic Party, I think is spot on. And, you know, the idea that you're going to have basically What's the, what, we should come up with some great satire for this, because you had Ali Frazier, then Ali Frazier, too. You had Trump versus Biden. Now you have Trump versus Biden, too. You know, and history repeats itself. The first time is tragedy. The second time is farce. This is, this is farce layered upon farce upon farce. I mean, this society, our 335 million people in this country, and we can't produce better presidential candidates that can envision a way forward for the society. I mean, God bless Joe Biden for defeating Donald Trump. That was historically essential. But we need leadership in the people's party of the two-party system that supports things like Medicare for all. We really, really do need that. The idea that we're going to sit on our hands and not generate this bill, following all that we learned about public health necessity during the COVID pandemic for the next five years, we're supposed to passively accept that. So yes, it's a symbolic thing that's going to take place in the Senate and the House It needs to be more. All I can say is I think we should not relent in advocacy for Medicare for All. From my opinion, private insurance, health insurance companies are wholly parasitic institutions that serve no social benefit. And I think most Americans in the country are coming to realize that. The idea of Medicare for All is more and more popular, but we're really no closer to getting there than we were any time in the recent future. It was the past.
3: It seems to me you have to wage war against the health insurance companies that you cannot get medicare for all in america until the democrats are willing to demonize health insurance companies the way bernie does and say we're putting them out of business sometimes the idea of medicare for all may not be as exciting as the idea is of destroying health insurance companies that's sexy waging war demonizing
6: See, this is my point about the 335 million people. How is it that the political class ends up with mediocrities? David Feldman, we should have minds like you in the White House. Okay, I mean that's what well, you have to
3: deem. You. You, we, we're a warlike yeah. people. You, you know, it's a war on poverty, a war on cancer, a war on Iraq. Well, if you want Medicare for all, it's got to be a war on greed. <sighs> Which means it's a war on health insurance companies, but it's got to be a war, and you got to demonize these people. You need a Democratic well, Party that names names.
6: Well, the operation of the U.S. healthcare system, I think, has to be seen. And then Bernie touches on this, but you know, Bernie tends to use these very powerful singular talking points, not elaborate too much, and so he doesn't really lean into the fact that what they really are is a reallocation of money from the middle class and working people in the upper middle class, even to the investor class. That's the really sole operation of the health insurance companies. And there really only are two groups of people who support the maintenance of the current system, and they're rich people who also make up the investor class and the direct beneficiaries of those companies. It's a little hard to vilify the way you're talking about, I think, because most people's experience of health insurance companies are the poor workers who are scrambling under i mean of course they're going to screw them out of their health care but you know they just seem like overwhelmed people trying to go through paperwork and they're not quite seen clearly as the class enemy and i think that's one of the general strategies in american society is sort of don't you think
3: they don't you think the upper middle class and even the rich hate Uh health insurance companies
6: well i do think that one of the things too is that the ways that sort of as it were the class enemies of the average person in American society are protected from being exposed for their role, is that one group of people who loves the current system are the very, very wealthy people, not just because of the way the investor money would flow back into them because they're invested in these companies that are actual companies, and as long as they exist, they're guaranteed to make a profit and therefore are good companies to have you know, as components of hedge funds, packages, and things like that. Because if you're really rich, look, we've got incredible medical talent here in the United States of America, undoubtedly equal to that of anywhere else in the world. And under the current system, they cater to the very wealthy who are guaranteed in the current system. They don't have to wait for their own health care. You know, the the proles can't get in their way. I disagree with you. I,
3: I know we have to move on. I think across the board, all classes are horrified by the current state of health care in this country, especially with health insurance companies?
6: Well, I, I mean, I have some friends who are very progressive. I know we shouldn't belabor this point. who are very progressive. And I've talked to them about this, who are very wealthy and they live in Beverly Hills. And upon reflection, they acknowledge they are very happy that they can have their health care at the snap of a finger and that the people who work in the medical industry will service them because they basically are free of the barriers from the health insurance industry because they're so wealthy.
4: And that's a wrap. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Until next time.
5: Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long.
3: Steve's in the temple. Too much money changing hair.